0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Germany announces that its museums will send the Benin bronzes back to Nigeria. Will other nations follow? I talked to Catherine Hickley, who broke the story of Germany's planned restitution of the Benin bronzes this week, and to Dan Hicks, whose book The British Museums tells the story of British colonial destruction and looting that led to the bronzes' collection by European museums. Also this week, a Van Gogh painting, which had never been exhibited, has just been sold at auction. We asked the art newspaper's Martin Bailey about the painting and find out how it got on in the sale room. And in this episode's Work of the Week, the artist Rana Begum talks about a work by Tess Jarre. Before all that, I'm pleased to say that the first episode in a new series of our other podcast, A Brush With, is out now, wherever you listen to your podcasts. In this latest episode, Julie Merrittu talks about her life and work through the cultural experiences that have most profoundly touched her and the artists, novelists and poets and musicians who have influenced her. Subscribe to A Brush With to hear Julie Merrittu and listen out on Wednesdays for further episodes. Now, big news emerged from Germany this week. Its foreign ministry announced that the country is moving towards the full restitution of the Benin bronzes in its public collections, which were looted by British troops in Benin City in Nigeria in 1897. Germany is on course to be the first country to commit to returning the bronzes to Nigeria permanently. According to Andreas Gergen, the head of the German Foreign Ministry's Culture Department, under the terms of the agreement, which is not yet finalised, Germany would take part in archaeological excavations in the region, provide training for Nigerian museum employees, and participate in the construction of a new museum in Benin, as well as restituting the looted Benin sculptures and reliefs in German museum collections. Gergen says he expects to wrap up the agreement by the summer. In Nigeria, a legacy restoration trust has been established to oversee projects, including a new Benin Institute. The institute, comprising a royal museum, an art gallery and a research institute, is to be housed in a new building designed by the architect David Ajay. It emerged on Thursday that the University of Aberdeen in the UK has agreed to return to Nigeria a looted sculpture from Benin, becoming one of the first institutions in Europe to commit to restituting a Benin bronze. The spotlight now falls on the other 160 museums that hold Benin bronzes, including another 44 in the UK, not least the British Museum. So, how will they respond? I spoke to Catherine Hickley, the art newspaper's correspondent in Berlin, and to Dan Hicks, Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at the University of Oxford, curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum there, and author of the book The Brutish Museums, which tells the story of the Benin Bronzes. Catherine, this is a fast-moving news story. What's the latest?
1: Well, the latest is a statement from uh, the foreign minister, Heiko Maas, where he makes it clear that restitution is part of the policy of addressing the colonial past. He says it's part of an honest approach and it's about justice. So it's obvious that the moves are definitely afoot. Um, what we're talking about here is the government preparing the groundwork with Nigeria together in order to pave the way for the restitution at some stage, but obviously the restitution will have to be negotiated individually by the museums in question
0: now the intent to restitute these works was sort of expressed some time ago by the German government right they talked about that it was legally and morally unjustifiable but this is the first time that like sort of practical steps have been taken by the German government is that right
1: I don't think you can say that, no, because the German government has been funding provenance research over the last couple of years and, you know, provenance research should lead to something at some point. It has also set up a contact, um, you know, station in uh, Germany for claimants to approach and to ask for information and to be put in contact with the relevant people. So the groundwork has been, Over the past two years has been done. And as you said, there has been this agreement. So the intent between the the states and the, um, the government and the municipalities. So the intent has been there for a while. And this was all just a matter of time, actually. So it shouldn't really be taking anyone by surprise. But of course, it is because it's such a big deal.
0: Right. Yeah, Dan, can you say something about that? Because, you know, it is big news, this, right? Because, you know, as your book details, there's been such reluctance from museums to in any way engage with the idea of repatriation.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I do think it's an incredibly important moment. The idea that we now have a a German official who has, has undertaken a visit to Nigeria in order to talk about the returns. And also, importantly, the fact that the display in uh, Berlin is being talked about in a new language, in terms of consent, that we're going to display African objects if we're allowed to, and we're going to ask, actually, that's incredibly important. So it's interesting for many that this is coming from the Germans, though, and not from the British. So what do we make of this moment of the German reckoning with... The empire that was built by the British. It's a very, very interesting moment.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point, isn't it? Because it was British colonial acts that resulted in the Benin Bronzes now being spread throughout the world. And can you give us a sense again, Dan, of just how widespread they are? Because yes, this is German museums, but they're across the world, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And so I think a lot of us sort of often imagine that all of the objects that were taken are in London or in the British Museum. But in fact, only about 8% of the more than 10,000 objects that were looted by the sailors and the soldiers and the administrators in this incredibly chaotic sort of process where, say, 200 individuals were simply seeking to enrich themselves and to load these things up. You know, and to bring them back. So then they enter the market quite fast. Some of them, although some actually are in the sort of hands of the grandchildren of those men who took them. But largely, they found their way into museums. And we're talking about hundreds. We're talking about forty-five or so in the UK. We're talking about twenty-five or so in the in in the case outside of Berlin of the Germans. But I mean, there are bronzes from St. Petersburg to Abu Dhabi, from Los Angeles to Lagos, you know, so this is absolutely this is part I think for many Nigerians, that's an incredibly important part of the fact that the art is everywhere and so is seen and is there to to be able to celebrate you know this incredible artistic achievement, but that certainly doesn't mean that that when they are asked to be returned. We can somehow hang on to the old arguments of the Universal Museum that says, actually, you know, it's okay to hang on to these things and to not sort of give them back. So that's part of what's going on at this moment. We're moving it out of only being about the British Museum.
0: Catherine, can you say something about what German museums are saying? We know what the the foreign ministry is saying, but what what about the, the museums themselves?
1: Well, the museums themselves are being pretty careful about what they say at the moment. So we're not really hearing much from the museums. I expect we will in the coming days and there will be sort of announcements about plans and so on. My hunch here is, and this is speculation, that there will be a lot of exhibitions before they go back. Um, It's kind of like a chance to do a, a sellout farewell tour, if you like. Um, and I think that a lot of people will welcome the chance, you know, to see them. And from the Nigerian perspective, I think that's also a good thing, because as long as they are willing to wait for the extra couple of months to get them back, it's also advertising in a way for Benin City and for the new museum that's going to be built there. Um, and so I hope that that's how it's viewed in 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 Germany.
0: Is there any capacity among the museums to resist a directive by the state which says that these should be returned
1: museums individually no i mean they are owned basically, by the states. The question is whether all of the regional governments will sign up to this and will go along with it. My suspicion is that they will. And I I don't think we would have got this far if they weren't willing to. And they have, after all, all agreed to that 2019 agreement, which, which is absolutely key. And that's a fundamental commitment to restitute stolen
0: artworks. Dan, the display of these works before they are returned, it seems to me, is a massive moment too, right? Because you've talked about display and how important it is. But, you know, this is also a moment where we can start to see the manifestos of future museums emerging, right?
2: Yes, in some ways. I mean, obviously, a lot of these things are already on display. I mean, in the UK, you're never that far from a display of the Benin bronzes, from Ipswich to... Edinburgh to Belfast to to, uh, to London and Oxford and Cambridge and Bristol and so on. So each of those institutions, of course, in the UK will be having its own conversation because they're not national institutions. So unlike the German case, where there is a federal conversation here in the UK, actually, most of these are not in the national institutions. So the decisions about returns will be for the trustee bodies. You know, Arts Council England have an interest. And of course, we're waiting for their report I think when the Arts Council England report comes out, I'm hoping that it will remind us that restitution is not only about this Nigerian question. So absolutely, we're going to see, I think, so much movement here here on the crucial question for Nigeria of, you know, these objects, of the Benin bronzes. But what about all of the other African objects in the collection? So in terms of manifestos for museums, you know, I think what we're learning from the German case is that so much of this is a refocusing. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's lockdown that has done this. Actually, when you shut the museum, the boundary between, if you like, what's on display in the galleries and what's hidden away in the stores is actually a bit thinner. There's a bit of permeability. It's all a store for a period of time. So we're now really focused on the fact that here in the UK, you know, less than 1% of African objects that were taken under colonialism are actually on display. So why are we holding on to these objects? Even for the British Museum, of the more than 900 objects that were part of this this incident in 1897, that are in the care of the BM, only 100 or so are actually on display. So there's 800 that are somewhere you know, that aren't being seen. And so why are they not being seen here in the UK when they could be on display in Nigeria? So that, I think, is how the museum world is really seeking to respond.
0: You're right to emphasise that, that that dispersal of the objects, but but the, the big spotlight does fall on the British Museum, doesn't it? it? It unquestionably is the most famous collection of Benin bronzes in Europe, and therefore they must answer to this and they must be thinking very hard about how to respond.
2: Well, I'm sure they are. Of course, I mean, there there are, you know, legal issues here. There would have to be a change to the National Heritage Act. But of course, that change was made in the case of Holocaust spoliation. And of course, restitution is, is, is of course, also you know, business as usual for national museums when it comes to ancestral remains. So for human remains and for the case of the Holocaust, we are able we have been able since the 90s to embed this as a part of our normal practice so in the very different historical circumstances of colonial loot from africa actually what will we see it's certainly within the gift you know of those involved to make a change to the law but i do suspect that the people who are going to be leading this in terms of institutions may well be the non-national museums
0: Right, that's fascinating. Um, Catherine, you you spoke to African museums and also African artists, and it was really striking to me that Emeka Ogbo, um, a Nigerian artist you spoke to, spoke about it not just in terms of Nigeria, not just in terms of Africa, but in terms of the world. So it's a symbolic case for far beyond these particular objects, right?
1: Yeah, I think it really feels like the start of something. And I've been talking to a lot of African scholars and activists over the past couple of days. And they all see it that way too, as a kind of an inspiring uh, move that will pave the way for many more. Um, there's a lot of activism that has really started to get organised in the last couple of years. And I was speaking to someone in Kenya who is in the process of setting up webinars with Ethiopian colleagues, Tanzanian colleagues. Um, and this is really talking, they're collaborating on what the next steps are, what what are the what is the groundwork that they need to do um, there in order to, you know, make sure that this campaign continues and that more things will go back. So I think. It's, um, you know, things are really moving both here in Europe and in Africa.
0: And of course, there's a tremendously exciting project going on in Nigeria right now, isn't there? Because there's the David Ajay Museum being built, for instance. So both sides are emphasising that it's a collaboration henceforth. So it's not just a one-way transaction.
1: I think one of the important things as well is that in Nigeria they have set up this trust, the Legacy Restoration Trust, which brings together the three parties, all of whom could be seen as potential recipients of restituted objects. So that's the Royal Palace of Benin, um, the uh, the National Mo- um, Commission for Monuments and Museums, and also the um, uh, the Edo State. So the three parties are all together in this this trust now. Um, and that means that um, they have set up there in order to be able to take back the, uh, the bronzes whenever we're ready to hand them over, basically.
0: <laughs> Dan, can you say something about the importance of that trust? Is it, do, you, do you see it as a kind of benchmark for how these kind of organisations might work in the future as, as these repatriations continue?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I think the founding of the trust is a real game changer. So, the fact that the three local agents, as it were, within Nigeria, are working together um, and in doing so they 're able to remove the Americans and the Europeans from these conversations and that 's what 's central because actually the case by case argument about the ownership of individual items actually is a Nigerian. So, the conversation, and it should be it 's not one that we should be tri- seeking to shape or to intervene with from Oxford or London or wherever so this this allows I think our institutions internationally to remove themselves from those conversations and to support the return of those objects, and of course, not having to wait until the new museum is built so I think what you know, what I think will be happening is the is the construction of some holding, sort of building some source of a facility that can sort of receive objects and can keep them safe um, as we work towards the opening of the museum. And I think I would just underline that there's an anniversary that's incredibly important that's about to come up. Come up. So next year is the 125th anniversary, you know, of this attack. And it was all of the work that led... To the campaigns around the 100 year anniversary in the 90s, that I think really laid the foundations for this moment we find ourselves in now.
0: I wanted to ask you, Dan, about the UK national museums and the whole retain and explain culture that the culture minister, Oliver Dowden, is trying to advocate. Does that extend, do you think, to Benin Bronzes? Can they make an argument that? basically instructs the British Museum not to cave into pressure etc. I mean I'm, I'm just wondering how it plays within that context.
2: Yeah absolutely so it's really interesting that we haven't heard that argument be put. I think that's incredibly uh, telling actually because of course I mean one could imagine that the retain and explain sort of rubric for for the uh, the built environment uh, sort of outdoors, might be something that is applied internally within a museum context. But but of course, it would be ludicrous to say to curators they can never change a display. I mean, the logic of it is almost as ludicrous as saying that there's something contentious over listed building consent. And if a community and an owner of a building want to make a change, that somehow they they sort of shouldn't. But I think fundamentally, these sort of conversations are exposing something incredibly important in the UK about how we think about imperial history. So we have often imagined that past to be about the history of slavery, which turns into something that the British somehow sort of weirdly win because of, because of, of abolition, as if they'd won a war. And then there's this big Queen Victoria-sized sort of gap, you know, in our historical consciousness until we get into the First World War in terms of our role internationally. There's a reckoning with that past that's happening now where we're seeing that so much of that past, insofar as it has been written, has been written in a sort of way which has sought to celebrate it. There's the famous line of the historian who says that we need to love the past. And that idea of sort of loving the national past has found its way into a discourse that some are advocating for objects, but I just don't think it will wash... In terms of the museum world, the museum world is so much about audiences and communities and their voices and their perspectives really mattering. The authority figure of the curator who's going to say, here's how it was and we love it (laughs) simply. I mean, it's ludicrous. So I think that's where we're at such an interesting point and such an important point across Europe for a new reckoning with these sort of later phases of empire, these incredibly violent phases, which often really empire in this period was war. And I think it's almost like, as our museums have sought to address racism, they've had to recognise that racism in this country has a history, and that history has a relationship with empire, and museums have a relationship with empire. So this is a conversation that we have to have in in a wholly new way.
1: Just to go on from that, because I think it's interesting to make the comparison with Germany, is that Germany has had to deal with this to a, a much greater extent, obviously, already with Holocaust era looting. And so the whole question of Nazi looted art has been at the fore here for a very long time. So confronting the past is something that Germans, first of all, are very used to, but also separating coming to terms with one's own role in history from restitution, because these are two separate things. Restitution is not an admission of guilt. Um, It is just wanting to do the right thing. It is wanting to restore justice. That's what it is. So it's not anything. I think in Britain, there's a strong feeling that if you start giving things back, then we're saying, you know, we did everything wrong in the past, which may need to happen too, but they are two separate things. And um, this is something that, um, that Germans already have as part of the mindset, if you like.
2: Yeah, that's right. But if I could just, just also just say, I think in the responses to my uh, book, it's been very interesting how some who hate it have said we have to choose in between either loving the past or or feeling it, it's shameful. And actually, that is not what this, this is about. But there is a risk, I think, for well-meaning institutions to think of themselves as trying to benefit in some way, to take some credit, some ethical credit, or some something on the moral spectrum from this work of restitution. I mean, this is necessary, but it shouldn't be in any way some, something to celebrate as a process in terms of how we are in these incredibly white institutions here in Europe. So it's a really important moment for anti-racism in art and museums, but let's absolutely not let it become something that museums in any way feel that they gain from. This is about giving back and, you know, the importance of the, of these objects in a Nigerian sort of context. I think the voice we need to find is one which is about how you remember uh, sort of war, how you remember loss, the sense of our museums as being sites of conscience, as being sites where we can remember that these awful things happened
0: lastly i just wanted to reflect a bit on the humboldt forum because it seems to me that this vast institution in berlin has almost been shifting before our eyes because if you think about neil mcgregor's appointment there a great advocate of the universal museum and now we're seeing the humboldt forum now facing up to the fact that the benin bronzes are not going to be displayed there or maybe only temporarily it seems to me that the nature of that institution is, is fundamentally changing as a result of these ideas changing Catherine, is that your perception?
1: Yes, I mean, I think that discussion also has been going on for a lot longer, really. I mean, the Humboldt Forum, in many ways, is a product of the 1990s, because that's when it was planned. So Germany has moved on a lot since the 1990s. I mean, at that time, we were just in the post-reunification era. There was a kind of quest for a national identity. 30 years later, Germany is in this very confident uh, situation, It's had a good 30 years. So the national discussion is not about who are we uh, the national discussion is um much more complex than that and there's much more acceptance of that uh, who we are is a lot more diverse than anyone wanted to think about 30 years ago so the humboldt forum kind of is a um, is a um is, is a throwback to an era before the First World War, basically. And it looks so out of place now. So that's the only way to describe it, really. It was just the wrong concept for that museum. But I think the museum itself, there has been a lot of discussion about it, you know, whether or not it was very sensible to appoint three white men to run uh, the various parts of it. But to be honest, I think there's been an awareness from the beginning that they had to be extremely forward thinking in their approach, and I hope that that's what will come out when it opens. We'll have to wait and
0: see Dan. any thoughts from you on that?
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean this isn't only an issue for Berlin, but in a funny way, you know Berlin are leading these conversations I think i mean what's what's odd is that we realize in the museum and we realize in the world of art i mean you know, who knew art was so important? Art, it turns out, is incredibly important for reminding us that colonialism is here still. Because in the in the museum it is here in form. You can go and see it. Here are objects where the sort of, if you like, the secondary historicity, the most recent layer of these objects' lives, is this this history of death and loss and sort of taking. And so the British were renowned for the removal of the documents and their burning, but they, they they weren't able to burn the museums. So in the museums, we have these interesting indexes for who we are and where we came from, but also where we think we're going to go as a culture. So th- I think the cultural world has really, you know, never been more. I think certainly in my working lifetime, from the statues outdoors to the displays in our museums, we've never seen art and culture at a more central role in a national conversation about anti-racism but also about the enduring effects of empire so we need to get this right it's not only and we need to get it right not only in berlin we need to get it right in oxford we need to get it right in london and it's an international conversation
0: Catherine and Dan, thank you so much. This is a fascinating subject. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks. You can read more on this story, including Catherine's latest reports and Dan's comment piece on theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. Dan Hicks's The Brutish Museums is published by Pluto Press and priced £20 in hardback or 7 99 for the ebook. And you can hear my in-depth discussion with Dan about the book on this podcast in the episode from 13th of November last year. The full archive is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. In a moment I talk to Martin Bailey about a recently discovered Van Gogh that's just been sold at auction and Rana Begum talks about Tess Jarre. But first here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. Thank you. The artist Jeremy Deller has created his first non-fungible token, or NFT, titled The Last Day. It will be sold at auction as an NFT for a week as part of an experiment in association with the art newspaper. Should it make any money, the first £10,000 after covering production fees will go to charity, the Cool Earth Environmental Charity and the AN Time Space Money Hardship Fund for artists. After that, the proceeds will be split three ways between the charities and the artist. The auction will start on the 29th of March. Della's animated NFT features a bucolic British landscape that becomes a vision of hell. Della told Tom Seymour, quote, it's apocalyptic for good reason. This new craze for NFTs feels like another way to bring the end of the world that bit closer. A work by the Spanish artist Santiago Sierra intended for a Tasmanian festival has been cancelled due to a backlash among indigenous and aboriginal communities. In Union Flag, Sierra planned to immerse a British flag in a bucket of blood drawn from people whose native territories were colonised by the British Empire. Gabriella Angeletti reports that the organisers of the Dark Mofo Festival in Hobart, Tasmania, which was founded by the maverick art collector David Walsh, apologised, quote, to all First Nations people for any hurt that has been caused. The leader of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, Nala Mansell, told ABC News, I think Aboriginal people have had a lot of blood spilt over the last 200 years. And finally, as Catherine Hickley writes, museums across Poland and in parts of Germany have been forced to close again as the third wave of the COVID 19 pandemic engulfing much of Europe prompted authorities to tighten lockdown restrictions. In Poland, where museums reopened on the 1st of February, the government ordered them to close again until at least the 9th of April, as daily numbers of new cases reached levels not seen since November. In Germany, meanwhile, Hamburg's Kunsthalle and Museum of Applied Arts were forced to close just days after reopening because of an increasing number. Of new cases in the city. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This month, Christie's is proud to present two exciting online-only print auctions. Banksy, I Can't Believe You Morons Actually Buy This Shit, is a dedicated sale offering some of the artist's best-known screen prints, open for bidding until the 30th of March. Highlights include a signed impression of Banksy's Love Is In The Air. The Spring Prints Multiple Sale is open for bidding until the 31st of March and features a wide selection of fine art prints led by Edvard Munch's important woodcut Melancholy 3. Other highlights include lithographs by L.S. Lowry and pop-up prints by Andy Warhol, Patrick Caulfield, Eduardo Paolozzi, James Rosenquist, Robert Rauschenberg and Roy Lichtenstein. This month Christie's is also proud to have announced a new global sustainability initiative, pledging to be net zero by 2030 with a 50% reduction in carbon emissions. Learn more about their commitment to sustainability on Christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, this week, an 1887 painting of Montmartre in Paris by Vincent van Gogh was sold at Sotheby's for €11,250,000. This, after a bit of late drama. It initially sold to an internet bidder for €14 million, but was then re-offered. Though lower, the final hammer price was still comfortably above its high estimate of €8 million. The work had never been exhibited since it was in van Gogh's Paris studio and had been in the same family since at least 1920. I spoke to the art newspaper's President Van Gogh expert, Martin Bailey, about the painting. So Martin, 11,250,000 euros, is that a fair price for this Van Gogh?
3: I think it's a good price for a Paris painting. I mean, sometimes we think that Van Gogh sell enormous tens of um, millions, but that's for the really great works which he did when he was in Provence in his later years. And Paris is an interesting period. He came there from the Netherlands and from Belgium, and it was in Paris he discovered the Impressionists. And this is a sort of transitional work. The colours sort of reflect what he discovered in Paris. And price-wise, his Dutch pictures often rather modest in price compared with the uh, Provence ones. And this is rather in between. Right. So And, and so, um, you
0: know, in terms of his artistic achievement, the Paris period, it's it, is, it, is it an in-between moment as well? In the sense, he's sort of finding his voice, but he hasn't quite flourished into that extraordinary colour and those amazing brushworks, etc.
3: Yes, I mean, just before he arrived, he said he didn't really know what the Impressionists were. But then he came to Paris and he was living with his brother Theo, who was an art dealer, and he suddenly found himself in the wonderful situation of, actually knowing um, the leading Impressionists and um, picking up their style. So that was very exciting for him and that led him to develop colour and, of course, it's colour that we really love with Van Gogh. That's it. I
0: mean, looking at the picture, it's, it's a scene in Montmartre, as we've said, and in in terms of the colour, one of the things that really is noticeable. Is it, isn't it? that sort of incredible unified colour that you get in the later Van Gogh, that powerful colour? There's a lot of colour in the work, but it doesn't.
3: it isn't resolved into, you know, sort of dominant colours, as it were, is it? Yes, and, and I, th- I think that's a very fair summary, it being a transitional work, and he was just learning how to use colour. Of course, he picked it up very quickly. And when he was in Paris, he actually enjoyed painting flower paintings, flower still lives precisely because it offered an opportunity to explore colour and we see this in some of his landscapes and in the Montmartre scene which was just sold so this this
0: scene actually relates to a work that's in the van Gogh museum is that right
3: um, there, there, there are several similar um, paintings and there's one in the van Gogh museum of exactly the same street or road, slightly further away. And um, it was five minutes' walk from the apartment of his brother Teo on the top of the hill, and uh, so it was a place that he knew well. And it was um, a a series of windmills which had become nightclub and bar and restaurant and um, I suspect he went now for a drink um, every now and again. So he's actually depicting, you know, a place that had an intimate part of his own life. And this has had an extraordinary history, this work, isn't it? Because it's only just emerged,
0: you know, out of nowhere, as it, as it seems. It was, it's a work that wasn't exhibited and was barely known,
3: right? Exactly. I mean... It was terribly exciting, I thought, when I heard that it was coming up for sale. Um, It had been reproduced in a tiny colour illustration, half the size of a postcard in a rather specialist book. But this was the first time that we really saw the picture. And it's been in the same family since just before the 1920s, so over 100 years, and it's never been exhibited. So we're seeing it um, publicly for the first time since it left the artist's studio, really. So, yes, very exciting. You know, you say it's, it's never been exhibited.
0: It left the artist's studio at a certain point. But where did it go in between? Would Theo would have held it for a certain period, for instance? Uh,
3: we don't know. Um, it appears not to have been owned by Vincent's brother. And therefore, someone else uh, must have been the first owner. And I suspect, it, I think there are two possibilities. One is that it was owned by one of Vincent's artist friends, because he often exchanged work uh, with people, including Toulouse-Lautrec and um, some quite big names. Um, The other possibility is that it was owned by Père who was a paint seller and very interested in the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists. And Vincent uh, left some of his work in storage with this paint seller, and it's possible that, that this was one of the works but its early provenance remains a mystery. So uh, I think that's something for the new owner uh, to explore.
0: So uh, Tell us about, a bit about Pertongi, because he, he was depicted by van Gogh. There's a very famous picture of, of Pertongi,
3: isn't there? Yes, he was rather a sort of radical figure, and he spent a lot of time with the avant-garde. Um, his wife didn't approve of him mixing with this sort of a crowd. Um, and... He was really committed. He was one of the first people who was really committed uh, to the work of the Impressionists and the post-Impressionists. And because he sold paint, artists would come there and sometimes they would um, leave their pictures, uh, an odd picture or two, in exchange for a few tubes of paint. So he's really an important part of the Parisian art scene at this time. Tell
0: us more about the Parisian art scene then at that time because we know so much about Vincent's life that... It's always intriguing to know what it was like when people met him in those circumstances. So you say he had connections, for instance, to Toulouse-Lautrec. What, what did the art world
3: in Paris make of him at that time? Um, well, that depended on who you were. I mean, he was living in Montmartre, um, which at that time was where the cabarets were being developed. It was an area of great change. Uh, it was really sort of uh, almost the hippie area of the day, if if you like, and a lot of artists lived in the area and they would mix and they would socialise and they would have drinks in the evening. It was a sort of small world, if you like, and Vincent was suddenly thrown into this group and, you know, he'd met Pissarro, Monet, Degas, Toulouse-Lautrec and, um, and of course, many other lesser names that we've forgotten now. And it was very exciting for him because he'd been in the Netherlands, essentially uh, living with his family in little Dutch villages in Brabant, uh, where there were no artists. He had a period in The Hague, but um, he was suddenly in the centre of the art world because Paris was the capital of the art world at the time. So it was very exciting. In the end, he found the excitement too much and he went to the south of France partly because he just found it too exhausting and um, he found it too stressful living in the capital. What did people make of his art at this time? Not very much, most of them. They didn't understand it. Um, uh, Some of his avant-garde friends did, but uh, they just didn't understand what he was doing. Um, They thought his work was crude, uh, the colours were garish... Um, He couldn't um, draw or paint a photographic-like figure, which the establishment artists at the time wanted. On the other hand, there were young artists who were very interested in his work. So um, it was a mixture, and I suppose he tended to drink with those people who sympathised with his work.
0: Now, your latest blog on Van Gogh, you, you have a weekly blog on the Art Newspaper's site, and uh, the latest blog is a really fascinating subject because we hear so much about Vincent and Theo, his brother, but we hear very little about the rest of the family, and this is about his sisters. Tell us about them.
3: Yes, it's a new book um, published in the Netherlands, which um, an English edition is coming out next month, and it focuses on the sisters of Van Gogh. I mean, there were six children. Uh, There was Vincent, there was Theo, who we always hear about, who was a great supporter. There was also a younger brother called Cor, who um, committed suicide when he was in South Africa during the Boer War. But we hear very little about the three sisters, so this is an effort to redress the balance, if you like. And they're all fascinating figures, and it's a real insight into the family situation that Vincent came from.
0: I mean, there's so much tragedy in the Van Gogh family, isn't there? And as you say, his brother died by suicide and, 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 and Vincent himself died, died by suicide. But, so, so,
3: um, but and, and the tragedy extended into the sisters too, didn't it? Yes. I mean, the, the saddest case, if you like, was his youngest sister called Wilhelmine. And she had an interesting background. She was interested in gardening and literature. And then she got interested and committed to the early feminist movement in the Netherlands, which is interesting. Um, that was when she was in her 30s. And then suddenly, in around 1902, we don't know exactly what happened, but she had some very severe mental illness which or mental condition. Uh, which emerged, and she was then sent to what was then called a mental asylum. And she was 40 years old at that time, and she actually lived another 38 years in this mental asylum, and she was very isolated during that period. She hardly talked to anyone. Um, She didn't want to eat, and the medical records suggest that she'd wanted to commit suicide. So that was very, very sad.
0: And is it right one of the other daughters looked after her or or funded her stay in the asylum, essentially?
3: Yes, that's correct. Um, The eldest daughter, Anna, she was the only one who led a relatively normal life. Uh, She married and she had two children and uh, she helped fund um, the care of Wilhelmine in the mental asylum and this was done by selling several of Vincent's paintings by the time they'd become worth something. And the middle sister is also particularly interesting. Her name was Lise, and she worked as a nurse looking after an elderly woman who had cancer. And she fell in love with her employer, the husband, and ended up pregnant. And she didn't want to explain to the family or her friends that she was pregnant. So she pretended to go on a holiday to England. And On the way she stopped in Normandy and had the baby in a hotel and she left the baby with a grocer and did not see her daughter again until about 40 years later when she tracked the daughter down and she visited the daughter and the daughter by that time was not interested and told her to go away and so she only saw her daughter once for a day or two in her entire life. So, it really is a tragic story what happened to um, the siblings. And of course, the fact that they had so many of them had problems raises the question of whether there was some genetic illness which they had, which I think is quite possible.
0: I was going to ask, have any studies been done? Is there any evidence that you can trace it back even further, for instance, to the parents or anything?
3: Um, there's been a lot of studies on Van Gogh, on Vincent's medical condition, and it's still not clear what it was. And I think there is no simple answer. There's no simple label that we can put on. And he may have had several problems. And indeed, the rest of the family may have had several problems as well. But I think an investigation and a deeper investigation of the fate of the brother who committed suicide in South Africa and the youngest daughter who wanted to commit suicide um, might reveal more about Vincent's medical condition. And, of course, that's what we really want to know. I mean it's sort of intriguing
0: isn't it to think that Vincent and Theo had a a niece that they may not have known about in terms of this this child that was born that was born out of wedlock and therefore given to this grocer that that you
3: talked about. Yeah I mean it's difficult in our era to imagine what it was like then and what sort of attitudes people had about um, children born out of wedlock. Now we would feel quite relaxed about it but in those days it was scandalous really.
0: So your weekly blog continues and and you seem forever to find (laughs) new things to write about Van Gogh and and, and extraordinarily you wrote recently about a grasshopper that was stuck into one of his paintings so just briefly tell us about that.
3: Uh, Yes well a a beautiful painting of an olive grove um, at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas in America was examined by conservators and under a very powerful microscope they detected an a grasshopper. Now the grasshopper was studied rather carefully and it was realised that the paint and Vincent used very thick impasto was not disturbed and it would have been if the grasshopper had unfortunately been alive. So the conclusion is that it was a dead grasshopper which was blown onto his canvas. But it is interesting because it confirms that this particular picture was indeed painted in the olive groves just outside the asylum uh, and it wasn't the work of Vincent's memory um, back in um, the, the asylum. So thanks to this little grasshopper we know a little bit more about the painting.
0: That's wonderful. Martin. thanks as ever for joining us. Okay, thank you. You can read Martin Bailey's weekly blog, Adventures with Van Gogh, including the story about the grasshopper and the one about his sisters at theartnewspaper.com. Martin's book, Starry Night, Van Gogh at the Asylum, is published by White Lion Publishing and priced £25 or $40. His book, Living with Vincent Van Gogh, the homes and landscapes that shaped the artist, including his time in Paris, is also published by White Lion Publishing and priced at £22 or $30. And another of his books, The Illustrated Provence Letters of Van Gogh, has just been Reissued by Batsford Press and it's priced £16.99 hardback and £8.99 ebook. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The artist Rana Begum has a show opening in April at the Kate McGarry Gallery in London, and her work of the week is Tess Jarre's Always Now from 1981. Rana spoke to the art newspaper's associate digital editor, Amy Dawson. You can see an image of the painting if you go to our website, click on the podcast tab, and look for this episode.
4: So thank you so much for joining us for the work of the week. You've chosen to talk about Tess Jarre's Always Now from 1981, which is held in the UK Arts Council collection. And it's a painting, it's acrylic on canvas and it's vast, it's over two metres high and almost two metres wide. And it's an abstract work uh, with rectangular shapes of differing kind of sizes, all formatted together to make what I think of as kind of a geometric wave on a blank background. But let's hear what you think about it. And can you also tell us about the first time that you encountered it?
5: I discovered Tess's work when I was studying at Chelsea. I was doing my BA there and I remember thinking about where to apply for my master's. And um, when I looked at Slade, I looked at also the tutors that are teaching there And that's when I actually discovered Tess's work. And the more I kind of looked at it, the more I was kind of drawn to her work. And I've discovered this work when I was looking at the Arts Council collection when I was curating the show there at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And that's when I first saw the painting and actually first saw the image of the painting. So I haven't actually physically seen that particular work But this is a kind of a body of work that I've been drawn to for a while. So this painting, it's one of those paintings that for me is, is... very much kind of, I feel, is drawn from architecture. It has a lot of qualities about kind of architecture. Even though it's flat painting, it's two-dimensional, it has this kind of three-dimensional quality. It has this ability to kind of really draw you in and take up this physical space. I found it really exciting. I found how Tess was able to, through perspective and through the application of the paint, or even the way the kind of the gradient is applied on those forms, that your eyes are almost directed, or kind of either starts from the top left corner and then draws down, or vice versa. And I I like this idea that you know, a lot of her paintings, it, it kind of leaves you reminding you of something that you've kind of either experienced or seen. Even when you kind of leave the room, you start kind of seeing geometry, uh, or the way that colour and kind of form comes together.
4: I want to pick up on what you were saying about the the kind of the way that the painting draws you in and it has this dynamism because in some descriptions of, of that work and other works he's done, uh, people describe her as kind of like, it's a bit like op art. And I think that looking at her work or this work in particular, it's not op art in a really obvious way. It's very subtle. And a work of yours that I've seen is, recently that again i felt had that subtle op art feel is the new commission that you've done for folkestone triennial 2021 with the kilometer long strip of beach huts that from certain angles you know there's this like you say gradation of color this geometry can you talk about the similarities that you see between yours and tess's work
5: That's actually a really beautiful connection you've made. I hadn't thought about it in that way. For me, I think the connection that I have with Tess is, I guess, you would say this visual language that we talk about quite a lot. When I was assisting her for about five years, you know, we talked about colour a lot. We talked about kind of how she was inspired by Islamic art and architecture and how You know, geometry is is very important to her. You know, what I also loved was that there was movement within her paintings, that it was never... Even though it was kind of flat on the flat plane, it never felt static. And I, I was always kind of looking for something that wasn't static within my work. That There was always something that drew people back to the work, whether if they were walking past it or if they were seeing something in the corner of their eye and it would make them turn again.
4: You talked about choosing your master's programme partially based on Tess being one of the tutors. Mm and you've said how you've worked with her you know over several years the relationship that you have now is kind of like a mentor mentee Relationship? Can you talk about how your relationship has helped you develop as an artist and how your practices feed into one another?
5: Um, for me, it's it is definitely, you know, the relationship kind of changed and it's yeah. definitely become where I, you know, I do call up tests quite a lot. I seek advice. I mean, the art world was quite scary leaving art school and you know, trying to kind of survive as an artist and trying to kind of navigate myself around, you know, the different relationships was not easy. And so having Tess as a mentor was incredibly helpful and it it definitely helped me kind of guide me through some of the difficult choices I've had to make throughout my career and you know it's just even having as someone who you can bounce off ideas or bounce off kind of you know certain thoughts and decisions where it's it's really important and especially because you know you get quite isolated after you leave art school and your priorities change And how do you kind of, you know, keep the focus and how do you kind of bring yourself back again to, you know, what it is that you want to achieve or do? It's not easy. And for me, test was very important in terms of, you know, some of the paths that I've chosen really helped make those decisions. I wanted to ask you about, you have a solo show,
4: your first solo show with Kate McGarry Gallery, opening in London on the 30th of April, and it's a show of all new works, is that right?
5: Yes. So this is my first solo show with Kate. And I love the space, uh, in Shoreditch and it has a lot of natural light. So the time of the year is also quite important in terms of, you know, showing this body of work. So it will be kind of flooded with natural light and that was important for me that it gets seen and that the light becomes quite a significant part of how the work is experienced. So there's three different body of work that I started working on for a few years now. I've been developing them and obviously through lockdown and last year, you know, I've been able to kind of push those series of work. So this will be the first time I'll be showing them. And can you describe some of the works in the show? Um, so the main work that I'll be showing kind of stems from the spray paintings that I've been doing for about, I think, five years or so, and... They started off as a kind of spray paintings where basically each time we painted or did any spraying, we have to check um, each can and test these cans out for consistency and flow and whether, you know, the colour was correct and, and things like that. So each time, you know, we would have to kind of spray it on this piece of paper that we just pinned up on the wall and then this kind of built up layers and layers over a kind of few months and it became really interesting one it was kind of telling a story of like what was happening in the studio but also I loved how these paintings kind of created this kind of depth you know obviously as the layers kind of built you can still see in some parts the paper or the first layer of kind of the testing and I loved loved seeing that kind of three-dimensional element, if you like, in in these paintings. It made me think more and more and I wanted to kind of bring that out into kind of the physical space and still have that kind of transparency, still have that kind of depth and still use colour. So the main piece will be kind of suspended from the ceiling and you'd be able to walk around it and see this kind of structure it's not geometrical so it's much kind of looser structure suspended that you could walk around and experience kind of movement and color and transparency well thank you so
4: much for speaking with us okay thanks so much amy
5: Ghana
0: Begum is at the Kate McGarry Gallery in London from the 30th of April to the 22nd of May. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page, and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so, and please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio, and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Judy Mahauska, Amy Dawson, and David Clack, and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Catherine and Dan, to Martin, to Amy and Rana, and thank you for listening. See you next week.